which means tabernacles. So this is the festival of tabernacles, the last of the, and the greatest of the fall festivals. Uh, so if you can make it uh, to Saturday's fall festival here, uh, we have a chili cook-off every year. We have a trophy that goes to the winner today. I was, uh, I, I won the trophy last year. It was neck and neck with me and Ed. We had a chili cook-off, uh, and he uh, brought some stuff that had set your hair on fire, and I loved every bite. Uh, he'll, so if you want to inherit this trophy, it is this big, and it is made of plastic. It's not the value of the trophy itself. It's what it represents, the best chili in Colorado Springs. How'd you like breakfast this morning? Wasn't that amazing? I'll tell you what. You can't have too much meat and French toast. So next time, we're going to double the meat. We'll throw some bacon in on it as well, maybe some biscuits, maybe some gravy. Who knows? What a wonderful breakfast. You know, the fellowship times uh, is what kind of binds the church together. We should fellowship in here. We should fellowship before church at breakfast times and midweek and home fellowships. There are there's so many wonderful opportunities to get together and just share with what God is doing. We've all got issues, we've all got problems, but when we come together, it seems like all of those are lighter. And we give them all, and we pray for each other, we love on each other. Uh, this is a wonderful church. I, I love you guys to death. You are, are so special. Sukkoth is a Jewish celebration, but do you realize that Tabernacles, according to Ezekiel, is the only Jewish festival that we will be celebrating every single year in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ? Here's why. Tabernacles was celebrated by the Jews for several different reasons. Thanksgiving for the harvest, to be sure. The last of the crops were brought in. It reminded them of their wilderness wanderings as God led them through the desert, bringing them out of their Egyptian captivity. But it reminded us, as well as them, life is temporary. Temporary. So uh, why will we be celebrating booths or tabernacles in the millennial kingdom? Because even the thousand-year reign of Christ is a limited period of time. From there, we walk into eternity, and we won't need to celebrate it anymore. It'll all have been fulfilled. That, that to me, is the glorious thing. In fact, all of the Jewish festivals, except tabernacles, have already been fulfilled. Passover, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. Mm. Festival of trumpets. I'm waiting to hear the last trumpet sound and call us homeward. It's going to be a glorious time. Praise and worship in our church really seems to set a receptivity in our hearts to receive the Word of God. It kind of breaks down those stubborn walls of resistance. You may have come in with issues, problems, outstanding conflicts, or something in your heart that's troubling you, and praise and worship just seems to pull back the veil and empty out the vault. I pray that it does that, that for you. And it prepares you then, I think, once you've emptied out all the junk to receive all the good stuff that God has for you in His Word. So continue with that open-heartedness towards God. In fact, I would like you to say this with me. Speak, Lord. Say it. For your servant listens. That's your commitment to do what He says. Seek, ask. Knock, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, and I think that's incumbent upon us to do that this morning. Don't walk out here saying, Pastor Jim stepped on my toes. I didn't write the book. It's not my fault. But if God's trying to get your attention, I encourage you not to resist that. Don't be stubborn. Don't cling to the things that just serve to make you and those around you miserable. Don't cling to those things. Let go and let God, as Fenelon said 500 years ago, let God, let go of the things that, that snare you. We are in chapter 3 of the book of Titus. This was a, a Roman, non-Jewish convert of Paul's early on in Paul's ministry. And he'd worked tirelessly with Paul in Ephesus, was with him on his third missionary journey. And Paul had such confidence in him. He said, I want you to go to Corinth. The church at Corinth was a hot mess. If you haven't read the book of First and Second Corinthians anytime soon, they had some issues. They had some problems. You guys glow in the dark compared to the, the church at Corinth. You, you, they were a hot mess in every sense of the word. But Paul had enough confidence in Titus to send him there and say, straighten it out. Love on him. Encourage him. Bless them, share the Word of God with them. 
That's a lot of confidence to have in this young Gentile convert. And then uh, Paul would send him from there to the island of Crete, one of the most debaucherous corners of the Roman Empire in the first century. They were legendary in their sinfulness. And for Titus to go there and square away the church there means that he had Paul's confidence. And God used him greatly on the island of Crete. Uh, Later on, he... uh, Paul had told him, join me in Nicopolis in western Greece. You know, Paul wanted him there with him. Later on, according to extra-scriptural sources, Titus was sent to what is today modern-day Serbia. And he took the gospel there to what is today Serbia and, and Kosovo and surrounding regions. And the last New Testament reference to him is where Paul writes these pastoral epistles at the close of his life just prior to his execution in the winter of 67 or 68. And considering uh, the assignments Paul gave him, this man must have been capable. He must have been faithful. He must have been steadfast. There is no higher quality that I admire than steadfastness. I think it is important to the heart of God because I see that God uses the kind of people in the Old Testament as well as the New that are simply steadfast, steadfast in their faith steadfast in their walk with the Lord. They're unshakable. They just seem to be a people whose feet uh, are on a firm foundation in Christ Jesus, people that aren't blown about by the winds of doctrine. Here or there, they're just a steadfast people, as as was Titus. It's been a very practical book. Paul has told him, here's why I sent you to Crete in the first place. And and then in chapter 2, here's what you got to teach to the different groups. The the older guys, the younger guys, the older women, the younger women. There there are specific roles and responsibilities there uh, that he outlines. And then in chapter 3, this is for everybody in the church. Regardless of age, this is for all Christians at all times in all places. This has no cultural context besides being applied to the children of God. That's the context. So this is Paul's section of the letter to you personally. To you personally. Now, there's a couple of different ways you can receive that this morning. You can cross your arms and glare at me. I'm not going to do that. I pray that God would snap you in two like a twig on a tree. Get your full attention and reveal His great love and tender mercy to you. Others of you aren't sure of what's going to come out of my mouth, but you don't want me to step on your toes. I love you. I will never step on your toes. However, the Holy Spirit will always convict you of things in your life that need to change. There's no condemnation in that. I don't condemn you. Nobody else in this church will condemn you. We're all a work in progress. Do not think yourselves more spiritual than you ought, is what Scripture commands of us. So in chapter 3, there just has to be an openness in your heart. Anywhere in this message, you can bow your head and say, Lord, I think you're speaking to me. I think this applies to me, my situation, my children, my grandchildren, my, my marriage, my work situation. Lord, speak to me. And help me to put into practice. If you don't put the Word of God into practice, we're no better than the Pharisees who knew the Word of God but didn't do the Word of God. So so ours is is simply, in fact, just let me tell you the end uh, end of the book before I get to it. It's all about submission. Submission. First of all, to God, obviously, all other submission flows out of that. Submission is a key word in this passage. And in that submission, I find find peace. In that submission, I know that all things work together for the good, so I'm not upset by anything. In that place, I experience the peace of God that transcends all understanding, all because I'm submitted. I'm submitted to Him. He'll tell us some practical applications of that submission in just a moment. But he starts out in verse 1 of chapter 3, and he says, remind the people. (laughs) Remind them and tell them, and then tell them again. In fact, in sermon prep in in college, I I fundamentally wasted two semesters learning what they call homiletics, which is sermon preparation. And in a nutshell, you could condense all of those two semesters down in the agony of going through that (laughs) to simply this. Tell them what you're going to tell them. And then tell them, and then tell them what you told them. 
I could have saved so much money if they'd have just told me that at front. I could have skipped all of those courses. Sermon preparation is submission to the heart and will of God. That's all it is. You know, when they told me the only way to do a sermon these days is a three-point expositional sermon with opening illustrations and closing illustrations that tie together. And so I was silly enough in class to raise my hand, and I said, well, excuse me, if that's, the, if that's the only and best way to preach, how come I don't find a single sermon in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that looks anything like that at all? I was not a popular student at seminary. But what I learned is, and hopefully what I was able to convey to, to my profs that otherwise were brilliant, brilliant men, I said, let God be God. Maybe a three-point expositional sermon is the way to do it. Maybe there's a topic that we need to cover. Maybe I need to just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as God has laid on Calvary Chapel's hearts to do. I, I think that's fine. But above all, let God be God. In fact, in the foyer, if you haven't seen it lately, it says, blessed are the flexible. <sighs> My pastor used to say it all the time, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. Well, that makes good sense to me. Remind the people, <laughs> you already know what's about to follow. I'm just going to remind you. Why is it necessary to remind you? Because the older you get, the more you forget. That's number one. Number two is there is reinforcement through repetition. So I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you before that, and then I'll tell you again. And next week, you know what we're going to do? I'm going to remind you again of what the, you already know, but you may not be putting into practice. You may not be putting into practice. So it is not enough to know the Word of God. Paul says, remind the people to do it. And here's what obedience to God looks like. And there is the first mention of the word. Remind the people to be subject. The word is submission, hupotasso in the original language, which means to give orderly rank and structure in a military setting. Like there are generals and there are underlings beneath them, all the way down to the lowest infantrymen. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do what is good, to slander who? No one. There are no exceptions. Speak well of people. In this day and age, in this political environment, in this season and time of year, it's ease. I mean, every day you open your mail, somebody's trashing somebody else who's running for elected office. Well, don't vote for this guy. This guy's a slime. The name quality goes back and forth, and you just tire of it. Slander no one, but rather to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility, humility to all Toward all men. If I'm subject to God, humility is the result. Just as Christ, he was so humble. He never demanded his own way. He didn't rub his, everybody's nose and don't you know who I am? If anybody ever had a right to say that, it was Jesus, and he, ne and he never did. He never did. So don't, you don't need to impress people with titles or who you are, how long you've been walking with the Lord, or what a magnificent servant you are, and how greatly God has used you here or now or in times past. A little humility will go a long way in the church today. It's interesting, the verb, remind the people to be subject. The verb there is in a tense in the original language. It means do it and keep on doing it. Keep on doing it. Keep on. So my job is to keep on reminding you. Your job is to keep on being submitted. We put it into practice then. Remind them that submission is, is something we continuously continue to let God do in, on, and through us. Be submitted to the rulers and the authorities? You mean the federal government? Yeah. You mean the local authorities? Yeah. You mean the police? Yeah. My mom and dad taught me long before they were ever saved. Do everything the police tell you to do. And if that were practiced by every man, woman, and child in America, there'd never be any police violence. There would never be police shootings. There would have never been a dead person. There would have been no riots, no burning down of cities in summers past. If you just do what the police tell you to do. I had a guy one time, an ex-gang member, tell me, well, Pastor Jim, you've never been. 
been slammed over the hood of a car and handcuffed like I have. That's why I'm so bitter. And I said, you have no idea whether I have or not. You're making a stupid assumption because as a kid who grew up as a hippie, I've been thrown over lots of hoods of cars. I've been <laughs> had lots of handcuffs put on me, sometimes for very silly reasons. You can either hold that against the authorities and let it rattle your cage and get all arrogant and forget that God's called you to submission, or you can do what the cops tell you to do. And no, don't run from the cops. Don't hide from the cops. You don't pull out a gun. You don't be something stupid like that. When they tell you get you get on the pavement with your face, do it. Do it. It's in your best interests to do it. On any given occasion, there are more police on beat that hour than you are. So do what they say or they'll call in the, the troops. You know, And that's what Paul is saying here. Do that and do it in a spirit of submission and gentleness. You go, well, sometimes it wasn't fair. This is the Roman Empire we're talking about. It was almost never fair. And yet God ordered him to submit. Do it. I remember one time, this was many, many, many years ago, I got a, I got a phone call from the emergency room at uh, Fort Carson Hospital, and my mom had uh, fallen on black ice and had shattered her ankle. And they said, she's going into imminent surgery, but she's not a good surgical candidate. Uh, you need to get down here right away, right away. This was a foggy, really foggy, really cold, uh, foggy, February snow day, there was, the wind was blowing sideways and it was caking everything with ice. And so I got on to Fort Carson, this was before 9-11 obviously, and I was driving around to the hospital and all the side, everything is coated in ice and the roads are just deadly and I'm driving along and I've got my two little kids in the car and Jenny was about four and, and Luke not much older than that. And, I, and I'm driving along and all of a sudden comes up behind me um, a Humvee with red, red and blue lights flashing around. And I'm going, okay, but I'm on an overpass there crossing a creek, and there's no place to pull over. There's not even a margin there. And so I'm, I'm driving at five miles an hour trying to figure out this dense, dense fog. I need to pull over. These guys maybe need to go around me or something. So eventually, right after the bridge, I got to turn off into the parking lot, and the guys came out with guns drawn. Both these guys with their 45s drawn, and uh, they said, well, we tell you to pull over, pull over. And I said, well, there, there was no place to pull over. There, there was no, there is no pull over there. I mean, the guardrails were right up against it. They said, well, there's no excuse. And they threw me over the front of my hood and uh, handcuffed me. I didn't tell them I'm a pastor. But <laughs> maybe I should have terrorized my two kids. They're bawling their eyes out. They are freaking out in the front seat of my little Ford Courier pickup truck. And these guys handcuffed me, and, and while you were speeding, and I said, how would I know? Every single sign since I've been on Fort Carson is iced over. You can't see a thing. I have no idea. But I was hoping somebody wouldn't rear-end me, but I know I wasn't doing over 20. And they didn't like it that I was arguing with me either, so I just shut up and, and got the ticket. And then uh, followed up later with a complaint to their commander and uh, took pictures of the stop signs that were all iced over. It wasn't fair. What they did wasn't right. My kids were traumatized. I eventually got to the hospital to see my mom. Uh, she was already in surgery at that point. I'm taking apart her ankle. She had destroyed her ankle 20 different ways in fractures. And you think to yourself, it would be easy to harbor a grievance against those guys. Be easy to say what they did was wrong, and it was. But the bigger issue is, can I submit to authorities when they tell you to stop and they throw you over the hood of the car? Can I deal with that? Yeah, I can deal with that. It is because I am submitted to Jesus Christ. I've submitted to him, so I'm not looking for a fight with the police. I don't think the police are out to get me. There's always going to be bad cops here and there. There's plenty of bad citizens here and there as well. I mean, the poor cops probably got to deal with the worst of society that you and I have never seen. So when they, when they throw you across the hood of your car, put a smile on your face and pray for them. Tell them Jesus loves them. What did Jesus say to do when they slapped the cheek? Turn the other cheek. Hmm. That's practical. 
And God will put you in a situation someday, some way, shape, or form, to impress that truth upon you. The submission to the authorities and the rulers over us, while we may not like it, while it may not even be fair, while it was, is easy for us to slander them, especially in a political season where their theology doesn't agree with ours or their political views don't agree with ours, it's easy to get rancorous. Remind the people to be subject to whatever rulers and authorities are over you. Notice that Nero was on the throne of Rome when Paul writes this. Submit to Nero? Nero, the demon-possessed nutcase? I'm supposed to submit to him? Yeah. Well, we got, we got rulers over us that are far better than Nero ever was, so we should be in submission to them. Be obedient. That means do what they say. Well, I don't like paying taxes. Nobody does. But Paul had previously commanded Timothy, you tell people to pay their taxes. Okay, we'll leave it in God's hands. Quite frankly, doesn't everything I have belong to God anyway? So given the government their portion, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Be ready to do whatever is good. Verse 2, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility towards all men. Now, you may be looking at this passage going, you know, that's impossible. There are some real creeps and curmudgeons out there that I, I'm going to have great difficulty doing this, slandering. Some people just deserve to be slandered, Pastor Jim. <laughs> Aren't you glad you don't get what you deserve from the hand of God? Then let's be gracious towards others that are still in bondage to their, their sin or their deception. Remind them that submission is something that you allow God to do in and through you. Here's what I find about this whole issue of sanctification. The closer you get to God, the more like Him you become. And then God begins to do a work through you because He's already done a work in you. First things first, though, here's where the change starts. Here's where the peace begins. Here's where that submission really is born. It's in the human heart. God, and I'm so glad we sang that song. You know, Lord, I give you my heart. Have you? How much of your heart? You holding back anything from God? Maybe he wants to change that part that is stubborn and resistant. I mean, we still all have an old nature, amen? Wish we didn't. But I don't have to be ruled by my old nature. I'm a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's what the Bible says. So I need to simply live up to my position in Christ Jesus. It's not that I'm trying harder. I'm submitting more. He's doing a work in me, so then he can do a work through me. As life unfolds in the middle of my situation, I think this is impossible. These commands are impossible apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Impossible. Have you noticed that Jesus was always asking the impossible of his disciples? Well, there's 5,000 people here. Peter, why don't you feed them? Peter's going, you know what I got in my pockets? A breath mint. That's all I got. It's not going to feed 5,000 people, Lord. Well, what's in your other pocket? Guitar picks and I think a penny. You know, I can't. Where? Who can do this? That's right. Jesus was asking the impossible of Peter. But I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's what Scripture says. But do I believe that? Or am I always thinking in terms of my own personal resources? Our God is greater than that. But this is a supernatural thing. And then Jesus, <laughs> how about this one? You thought, well, maybe I could have fed some of them. I'd have stolen some kid's lunch and divided amongst them. Everybody would have one tiny crumb. You can't think in terms of the natural Here's what the disciples should have said. It's impossible for us to do it, Lord, but with you all things are possible. What would you have us do? That's, that was the lesson they were supposed to have learned. Didn't, so they got the same lesson just a few weeks later in the feeding of the 4,000. And they missed it then, too. I'm sure God's up there going, wait, wait. What am I going to do with these disciples? <laughs> He's so patient with us, though, isn't he? So gracious. So patient. I, I praise his holy name. And that's why he's reminding the people. Because you might have flunked your test the first time it was said to you. 
He might flunk it the second or third or fourth time. He's a God of more than just second chances. He's so patient with you. He loves you. Listen, he loves you just as you are. But he loves you too much to leave you just as you are. The love of God is going to always draw you deeper into the heart of God. Because in that place is holiness and peace and submission. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. It's impossible to do the things that Jesus asked us to do without the empowering of His Holy Spirit. And, and the disciples that thought they could do it in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, He capped it off with this, and he, as if they hadn't gotten lesson before. Jesus said, Be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And now it was the disciples' turn to go, Oh, hey, who can do be perfect? It's all I can do to be halfway good. That's right. In your flesh dwells no good thing. You can't do this. At some point in time, all of us Christians have to learn, it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. We've got to be in the Word of God. We've got to let the Holy Spirit of God do a work in and on us so He can do a work through us. But some people have clogged that pipeline up. They're not in God's presence regularly. They're not in His Word. They, they hope to, to miss worship by coming to church late, and they just want to sit through the sermon thinking that that's all God requires of us. God wants your heart, and He wants all of it. So submission, anytime you read the word submission in Scripture, it starts with submission to God. Submission to God. He, understand He's your loving, heavenly Father. Whatever kind of earthly father you had, Jesus, He surpasses them all. He's the great shepherd. He knows how to take care of a sheep. He loves you. He's got this. He's going to take care of you. We've got to do our part and ask and seek. And I, Where does this ability to do the supernatural come from? First of all, you've got to know Christ. You know Jesus Christ? Have you submitted your heart to Him? Have you asked Him to forgive your sins? Have you asked Him to come into your life? make you brand new, fill you with His Holy Spirit. That's where submission really begins. Heart sold out for God. I confess my sins. I repent of them. Well, that means I stop doing them anymore. I turn my back on them. I, I was going this way. I'm going the other way now. I was running away from God. Now I'm running towards God. That's where repentance is. You need to confess your sins because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. We need to repent of those sins. Without repentance, no one's going to see the Lord. Got to give it up. We still struggle with the old nature, but daily we die afresh. I remember a story. Uh, you might have heard the name uh, John Newton, a man who lived a couple of centuries in back of us. He was the captain of a slave trader ship, brought slaves that were stolen from Africa and brought them over to the Caribbean and the American uh, colonies in those days. And, uh, and then one day, and he was a seasoned captain, to a captain, but one day he ran into this absolutely ferocious North Atlantic storm, blown way off course, had no idea where they, the ship was about to sink. And there was a group of Moravian believers that were on the, uh, the desk, just a handful of them, that were singing praises to God. He thought they were crazy. So he went up to them and said, what's the matter with you guys? Aren't you afraid to die? They said, we know Christ, we die daily. No, we're not afraid of dying because we die daily. So this is the daily journey you take with the Lord. Daily, you have to die to the sins, the flesh, the old nature. Daily, you've got to seek this supernatural empowering we're talking about. Daily, you need to be in prayer. Daily, in the Word of God, we need each other by way of fellowship. When we're struggling, we can say, brother, sister, would you pray for me? We can do that. We can come alongside of each other, not in a condemning way. We're not trying to air out anybody's dirty laundry. We want to know Christ, and we want to help those that are trying to follow Christ. That's all this is. Ask and seek and knock. In Luke 9, Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. 
But you got to keep on asking. All of those are participles in the original language. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and the door, keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who receives, he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of your fathers, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You want the Holy Spirit? You want this supernatural empowering? Ask, seek, knock. He'll do that for you. But he wants to see that you're earnest. So you may have to pray about it more than once. Well, I prayed about it once, tied up all, all the 15 seconds in prayer, and it didn't happen yet. Well, keep on praying. Keep on, keep on asking and seeking and knocking. Continuously continue to walk with him. That's what dependence upon him is all about. Dependent upon his word, prayer, fellowship, worship, obedience, walking in obedience doing the things that the early church devoted themselves to in Acts 2.42. Can I tell you, when I read the Bible, it reads me. We don't just read the Bible, it reads us. It pricks our conscience, it speaks to us in the inward parts. It tells us and shows us areas of our life that we need to change. I don't just read the Bible, understand, because it's a supernatural book, the Word of God. It reads me. Hebrews tells us that it is a sharp-edged, two-edged sword that cuts all the way to the core of the issue. Hebrews 4, 12, the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Some of us just got nailed. It's not about just outward conduct. What's in the heart? Have you done an attitude check lately? Is there somebody that you hate, can't stand? Is your marriage in disarray? Some coworker that you would just like to run over with your F-150 pickup truck? That's an attitude of the heart that just needs to change. You want your marriage to change? Then you change first. You want a better walk with the Lord? Then you be the first to do that. Don't wait for somebody else. That's an excuse from the pit of hell, but you already know that. You've just been using it as an excuse. God will never let you off the hook with, well, I'll change when they change. Well, I can tell you this, they will never change because you just flunked your test. It's not about them, it's about you. It's about me, personally, between the Lord. I'll tell you what, before God has ever changed anybody I've ever prayed for, He's changed me. That's the way it's supposed to work, lest we be hypocrites. Scripture presents the Word of God as the most powerful force on the planet, a force that transforms, a force that leads us to spiritual maturity. So open it, read it. Read it aloud, asking God to reignite our heart for Him, asking Him to restore that passion that we may once have felt. He promised that His Word will never return to Him void or empty, but it will accomplish its purpose. That's Isaiah 55, 11. You, you touch the hem of His garment and your life will never be the same again. That's what God has for you. We play games with God. Oh, I'll give God a little bit here. i got time for a five-minute devotion. I'll read the Word of God if I get around to it. I'm so busy. And God's saying, no, you're not so busy. You don't care. Your spiritual priorities are misplaced. You're using time, your poor time management as an excuse, but the bottom line is you don't care. You don't want to change. And so you prefer a life of misery apart from the love and joy and peace and patience that God wants to impart to you, and you stand aloof and think that that's okay. That's normal Christian living. No, it's not. The world will mock you to your face if you do that. Touch the hem of his garment and do it daily like those Moravians on, on John Newton's ship. John Newton's an interesting character. After he got saved, he eventually became a pastor. 
But he got saved because of those handful of Moravians just praying in the midst of a, a tumultuous sea. And he wrote the most, the single most famous and most recorded song that has ever been written, John Newton did. You may have heard of the tune, Amazing Grace. And then he wrote 280 other hymns and pastored a church, and God used him magnificently. A slave trader? Yeah. Once he died to himself, once he confessed his sins, once he repented of them, God, he was never the same again. You let God get hold of your life by completely selling out to him, your life will never be the same again. Do it. What's stopping you? What is stopping you? Nothing but you. Nothing but you. God has so much for you, and we tend to settle for so little. Yes, so much. We slander no one because that's bound to our old nature. No man, verse 2, no man should say about other people what he would not like them to say about him. So speak well. Speak well of people. Like my grandma told me when I was just a kid, if you can't say something Nice about somebody, Jimmy, don't say nothing at all. Zip the lip. Don't slander, don't gossip. We're supposed to be walking in a peaceable and considerate way. Like we're told, verse 3, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not... Not because of the righteous things we had done. All of our righteousness was as filthy rags. But because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth. It's not a reference to baptism, but an internal washing by the Holy Spirit. And renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us generally, generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. There is so much packaged up there. Your old nature, look at verse 3. This is who we were. It's not who we are. This is who we were. Don't go back like a dog returns to his vomit, as Peter says. Don't do this. If you're a new creation, these things are behind you. We, too, at one time were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's the world in a nutshell. It's just a harsh place sometimes, a very harsh place. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, verse 4, in other words, act according to your new nature, not your old. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Act like it, verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Okay, go back up to verse 4. What changed us? His love and kindness. What continually changes us? His love and kindness. That's why you need to be in His presence. His attributes rub off on you the closer you get. Stay there. It continually, His love towards man. The word is philo, philos anthropia. The philanthropy of God our Savior. And it's an old word for simply the love of mankind, that God loves us. We should love others and realize they've all been made in the image of God, but sin has marred that image. They just need to be set free. They just need to be delivered from their deception and disobedience. They're enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, whether it's the love of money or power or a thousand other things. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But Jesus changed all of that. If this new stuff is for this love and mercy is what God has filled us with, shouldn't that be what we manifest one towards another? Of course. I've been saved. I've been born again. I'm filled with His Holy Spirit, whose fruit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self control. Self-control means I can say no to sin. I don't have to go there. I don't have to go towards addictions or alcoholism or pornography or whatever else. I can exercise self-control because why? I'm filled with His Holy Spirit. Where does that come from? Him. Put yourself in His presence. Your sin will fall away. 
sooner or later and eventually and over time. But put yourself in His presence unless you want to continue to be in chains and bondage. Here's the problem. Compromised Christians are never happy. They're never happy. They're in bondage still to an old nature that Jesus died to set them free from. But they stay enslaved. And I always ask, are you reading your Bible? No. Are you praying? No. Go to church? No. But my life's a mess. What's the problem, Pastor? They've just diagnosed their spiritual condition, but don't do anything about it. And when I bring that to their attention, oh, so gently, you just said, you don't read, you don't pray, you don't fellowship, you don't seek God, and your life's a hot mess. But I used to read, and I used to pray, and I used to go to church, and my life was not a hot mess. What's the problem, Pastor Jim? Like the church at Ephesus was told by Jesus in Revelation, go back and do the first things you did. Go back to that place where you first loved Jesus. Build an altar again. Submit your life. Humble yourself before him, and he will lift you up, James tells us. And that's really your part and mine, isn't it? He loves you so much, but we settle for so little. Oh, I hate being in bondage to pornography. I hate being in bondage to these drugs and alcohol. Jesus died to set you free. He's given you his Holy Spirit. What else can, more can he do? But we have to put ourselves in his presence if we're to ever be set free. We're like the criminal whose prison door is open and the warden says, you're free to go, but we stay in jail. We stay on our cot feeling sorry for ourselves. Oh, what was me? I'm still in bondage. The door's open, dude. Get up and walk out. But we don't do that. Because somehow or another, we're afraid it'll take something away from us that's pleasurable to our flesh, and we're not ready to give it up. We make our excuses. Life is hard, so I indulge the vices of the flesh. They're excuses. You know it. I know it. And the Holy Spirit has already told you that. What should you do? Surrender afresh. Seek the face of God. Repent. Confess your sins to him. Repent of those sins. He'll wash you. He'll cleanse you. And he will re-empower you. But we have a part in this process called sanctification. Verse 5 reminds us, <laughs> he, he saved us. We didn't save ourselves. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's supernatural. Whom he poured out upon us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Jesus Christ already paid the price for your sins. You're not in bondage anymore. Give it to him. Let him set you free. That's what he died to do. Ephesians 2.8 reminds us, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's why you were saved. God's got a work for you to do. You need to find out what that is and get doing it. And the sooner you finish your task, we can get out of here. So don't dilly-dally, okay? If I find out you're the one who's holding up the second coming of Christ, you're in trouble. Our salvation isn't based on any righteousness that we possess. We, we had none. And we think, well, maybe if I, you know, just get on my knees, then God will save me. Or maybe if I go to the altar, um, I'll, I'll, I'll be saved just by that simple act. Or, or maybe I'll just pray some trite prayer and copycat prayer. Yeah. Well, that won't save. Baptism, well, that makes you wet if you're not saved. But it doesn't save you. You're not saved by baptism. You're saved by believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Church attendance doesn't save you. Pagans don't like coming to church because they squirm. They come here because they're goats and you're sheep. I can feed sheep, but goats, all I can do is lead them to the throne of grace. Well, maybe if I throw a buck in a plate when it comes by, I'll be saved. Can't buy off God. I don't give to earn my way to heaven. I give because I know I'm going to heaven. And the things of earth, I can keep a loose grip on and give God whatever he wants. In fact, doesn't it all belong to him anyway? Sure it does. Each of these may be wonderful works of righteousness, but they don't save us. According to his mercy, he saved us. And mercy is simply compassion and forgiveness towards somebody who really didn't deserve it. It's interesting in the French language, 
Merci means thank you. In religious terms, thank you, Lord, for not treating me according to my sins, but according to your grace and mercy. Mercy. So, you come to this church, you learn French, you learn Greek, you learn a little Hebrew, sometimes some English. Quite the cultural education you're getting today, huh? <laughs> so, and go home and impress your friends by saying merci. You know what the good news is? Verse 6 starts out, He poured on us, poured out this eternal life on us graciously, generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, at the cross, Jesus took all of your sins away from you. But He did something more than that. He gave you His own righteousness. So it's like He took all of your filthy garments on that you've been wearing for 20 years and were moth-eaten and they'd never been washed and they smelled bad. And He took all of that and then He gave you these crystalline gloriously white robes of righteousness, His righteousness, not ours. So He took away all of our filth, and He washed us, and He gave us new garments to put on, His righteousness. And our grateful response is simply the good works, to maintain the good works that we've just been reading about. So in verse 7 then, so that having been justified by His grace, just as if I'd never sinned, that's grace that we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Eternal life looks far beyond the issues that we face today. It looks far beyond politics and wars and saber-rattling by nuclear powers. Don't be disturbed by any of these things. Don't let them move you. Don't let the nightly news scare you. Oh, this country's so out of control and there's rioting in the streets and the economy's in shambles and I can't afford you know, food and I can't gas up my car. Yeah, it's a reminder that we're looking forward to an eternal hope in Christ Jesus, an eternal life. Verse 8, and this is a trustworthy saying that I want you to stress these things, Titus, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. That's your part. I'm your Titus today. My job's to tell you what God requires of us, me as well as you. Devote themselves, verse 8 says. Boy, that's a strong term. It's in the middle voice in the original language, which makes me a co-participant in the action. I have to put myself in God's presence before the transformation takes place. I have to choose to open up the Word of God before it does me any good. I have to choose to bow the head and submit and pray and seek His face before anything happens. We have a part in this. Devote yourselves to these things. That's our responsibility, and I think Satan is going to oppose that vigorously. Uh, today, the most common uh, attack is to make us too busy to fulfill our biblical responsibilities to God. And, but understand, that's every man's battle on planet Earth. Every man's battle, every woman's battle is time management. But have you noticed that we have the same 24 hours available to us that Jesus did when He walked the Galilean shores 2,000 years ago? He had enough time to do the perfect will of God. After His father passed away, He was responsible for the entire family as the eldest son. He worked harder than any of us. A typical Jewish work week was six days a week, 16 hours a day. Now, perhaps you work more than 90 hours a week, but I doubt it then you should give God His due without excuse. If they could work 90 hours a week, then we can carve out a little time to spend with God every day. You just need to figure out when that time is. Oppose Satan. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, James 4, 7 says. But that is prefaced with the quote in James 4, 6, submit yourselves to God because that's where it starts. Submit yourselves to God. Don't fight Him. Don't make excuses. Don't be stubborn. To be stubborn is to act more like a goat than a sheep. Goats live only to butt heads and eat trash. Don't do the goat thing. You're sheep. Don't try to go back and butt heads and, and argue with God about what you will or won't do. Open the Bible every day and say, I will do what it says, Lord. By the power of your Holy Spirit, fill me again, equip me, and I'll do exactly what you say. Busyness, busyness, busyness. 
And yet Jesus promises us rest. And you remember that out of Matthew chapter 11? Come unto me, Jesus said, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That's submission. And learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, the King James Version says, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy. Why is it easy? Because he's pulling the majority of the load. That's why. Yoke yourselves together with him. He'll pull the majority of that load. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Mm -mm -mm. I'll, take you. I'll take you up on your offer, Lord Jesus. I will yoke myself together with you. I will trust you to pull the burdens I can't. Give me strength to pull the burdens that you put me in. I will not argue with you. I will not fight you on this. I will not resist. I will obey your word. To devote themselves to doing what is good, verse 8 says, these things are excellent and profitable for everyone, all Christians in all places at all times. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies. Avoid. Uh, peristomy, <laughs> that means turn around the other way and walk. Just turn on your heels, spin around, walk away. Just walk away. Because there's a lot of people out there, if you notice, that just like to argue. They couldn't care less what you think. They do want you to think like they think, and they will argue you with it to the death. Walk away. Just walk away. Know what you believe and why you believe it. But if all they want to do is argue, you know, that is unprofitable. They're not seriously seeking the truth. It's just a waste of time uh, to debate with them. So in verse 9, don't do that. Quarrels about the law, genealogies, arguments, theological. Well, are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? Well, should we argue mid or post or mid-trib or pre-trib positions on the rap? You know, just, just walk away. Just why you don't want to argue about anything. He says because these things are unprofitable and useless. Here's what you do to the guy who wants to engage anybody in constant debate and argument within the church. Verse 10. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. Ooh. Warn a divisive person. Interesting word, divisive. Literally in the Greek, heretic. It meant originally one who was a hair splitter over theological issues. Heresis was the root of it. But a divisive person is, is a heretic who promotes dissension uh, by promoting and spreading extreme views of legitimate Christian truths like some do today, but leaving the rest of the Word of God about this. I don't have any problem at all with the Scriptures that Calvinists quote. It's all the ones they willfully ignore that really bothers me. Is God sovereign? Of course He is. Is man responsible? Of course He is. Ask Adam and Eve. They sinned. God held them accountable. But He didn't make them sin. Sovereignty is one half of the coin, and the other side of the coin is the responsibility of man. It's like arguing about which side of the coin is the real coin. Well, that's a fool's error. Don't engage in that. Just, just walk away. Have, it says, verse 10, have nothing to do with them. Paul commands you yourself. It's imperative. You, he commands. You yourself have nothing to do with that person. You just... Put your mind to walk away. Verse 11, you may be sure that such a man who wants to argue and be divisive is warped and sinful. He is, wow, self-condemned. Self-condemned. All the argument. Here's what the NIV Study Bible's footnote has to say about verse 11. And I couldn't have thought of a better way to word this than they did. Stubborn refusal to listen to correction reveals inner perversion. Did you catch that? Stubborn refusal to listen to correction, whether from this pulpit or from the Word of God or the Spirit of God, if you, stubborn refusal to listen to correction reveals inner perversion. That's why you don't want to be stubborn with God. Listen to correction and embrace the things that he challenges us 
to obey constantly. And then he closes out with these final and very personal remarks. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, that is Western Greece, because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need, other missionaries. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Well, that's just a recurrent phrase in this whole book, isn't it? Do what is good. It, it's very simple. Do what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities, not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. In the faith. Grace be with you all as you close out. Very, very personal, very common in, in all of Paul's letters. It, it, a brief glance, it looks pretty insignificant, but I think very important if we'll just take a, a moment to let it speak to us. They communicate to us that Paul was a real man in real circumstances in a real world that was sometimes very difficult, but had real friends that he had regular contact with and he cared for. He cares for these people. He was a pe Paul knew and he cared about people. Do you? Do you care about people? Whether lost or saved, do we care? Do I have the heart and mind of Christ? I should see everybody on this planet as a Christian or a pre-Christian. And we can pray them right into the kingdom of God. We can love them right into the kingdom of God. We can pray God and save them. He says in verse 14, our people, our folks, if you will, the, the Cretan converts uh, were not just Paul's friends, but it's part of the community of faith that binds us all together. And keep on learning how to devote ourselves to doing what's good, grace, the favor of God. He closes out, be with you all. Grace is God's unmerited favor. He loves us. He pours out blessings upon us. We enjoyed some of those blessings this morning. What is better than sausage? French toast dripping with gooey, sticky. I love it, man. I, I, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, because I didn't have that stuff at my house. And so to come to, for a bite of French toast and some sausage. Mm. God's favorite son besides Jesus must have been Jimmy Dean. <laughs> Here's what he says. I'm going to tell you what I said. I'm going to say it. Then I'm going to tell you what I said again. We're saved. Act like it. Don't you love a pastor's closing comments? <laughs> You're saved. Act like it. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Act like it. Devote yourselves, first of all, to God. Do it again and again and again regularly. And then devote yourself, secondly, to doing good. Do the right thing. And if you're falling short in any of the ways that we've talked about this morning, confess it, first of all, as sin to God. Secondly, repent. Change. Do it differently walking out of here today than when you walked in. Thirdly, do what is good and right. Fourthly, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you afresh with His fruit, not yours. Love and joy, peace and patience. You know, the, you know the list. Ask Him to fill you afresh. Okay, what Paul has been telling Titus and Titus telling these precious Cretan uh, believers and occupants of the island is who we were does not have to dictate who we're going to be. Who we were is not who we are in Christ Jesus. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. Act like it. Old things are passed away. Act like that. Look forward to those things that, that lie ahead. But who we were does not have to dictate who we are or what we will be. Your, your past failures don't have to define you. Take that to the cross of Jesus. Ask Him to forgive you and empower you afresh. He will. He's just waiting. He is aching in His heart to have the people of God humble themselves before Him, seek His face anew, and be empowered by Him afresh. You see, He's still in the business of planetary change. I'm not talking about climate change. That's not what I'm talking about. He's in the, he wants you to be a planet changer a planet shaker. He wants you to be a blessing to the people that you come in contact with, whether your circle is small or large. But he wants you to be a blessing to others. Your past failures don't define who you are. But what you do with today's message does. 
Don't you love it when it's that quiet? Your past failures don't define who you are. But what you do with today's message does. Do we stand and close in prayer together? Brothers and sisters in this common thing? It's common faith. It's glorious time. Heavenly Father, you are a good, good Father. Oh, you are so wonderful. You've never treated me according to my sins, but according to your love and grace and mercy, you've multiplied blessings upon blessings to each one of us. Lord, we've, we enjoy your blessing. We breathe your air. We drink your water. We eat your French toast and enjoy your Jimmy Dean sausage. Lord, we, we should be a thankful people. I'm thankful for a, a warm building on a chilly day. I'm thankful for comfy seats, Lord, that instead of folding metal chairs, I, I'm just blessed, Lord, coming and going. Thank you, Father. 